today we are continuing in our series on stewardship entitled God Gives, We Submit. God Gives, We Submit. We find our way to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And if you know anything about James, James writes very practically to us, uh, one of the most practical uh, letters in the entire Bible, talking to us how to live, how to make choices. And so we've got to make that choice that when God gives to us, we submit to his will. And so today we're looking at stewardship, God gives, we submit. James 4, 1 through 10. So many things hinder our growth in Christ as we come from the ways of the world, doesn't it? There's a lot of things that hinder our growth. Many of us had to fight our way to the top in the business world. Chosen, uh, some of us have chosen to flaunt to get attention from people we thought uh, desired our focus. Maybe, maybe you've been caught in that. Uh, you've had to consider, we've had to consider ourselves above and before others to obtain and achieve. Maybe that happened as you were, went before you came to Christ. But this is the way of the world. This is the way of the world, to do things in those ways. And this is who we were before God gives us his son, his salvation, and his spirit. The scripture tells us that we war and fight because of our passions of the flesh. And James wrote that murder becomes an option because of our inability to obtain stuff, not only to obtain stuff, but to obtain other people's stuff, and that's called coveting. Okay, so before I get too far, I'm kind of, the first six, six verses of what we have today is kind of my introduction, okay? The first six verses. And I'm going to move through them very quickly because verses 7 through 10 is where I'm going to kind of land for the, for the majority of the sermon today. So if you will, take out your copy of God's Word, find your way to James 1, uh, James 4, 1 through 10. And let's read along. I'm going to be reading from the New King James. That's also what will be on the screen. Scripture says from James Penn, from the Holy Spirit, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. As we look at this, and as I have started out, James starts off talking about these wars and fights that come from among you. Now understand, James is writing to a congregation of believers. He was a pastor, and he's writing to a church. And he's talking about wars and fights among the church members, and he's also talking about wars and fights within ourselves. 
So he's talking about battles that are going on within the church, the church as the individual, the church as the local autonomous church, the church as the whole. So he's writing, where do these fights, where do these wars and fights come from? Do they not come from desires for pleasure that war in your members? That's in yourselves and, and within our uh, bodies, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, all these different ways. Is that not how it comes? So James wrote that murder becomes an option because of our inability to obtain stuff. Not only to obtain stuff, but to obtain other people's stuff called coveting. Called coveting. He says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. And why do we not have the things we desire? Well, first, it's because our relationship with the Lord isn't right. Our relationship with the Lord isn't right. If our relationship with the Lord was right, we would do what James writes. We should do at the end of verse 2 where he says, we simply do not ask. We simply do not ask. At the end of verse 2, he says, yet you do not have because you do not ask. But it's not just that we aren't asking. It's in the spirit of the asking that we are not receiving. It's in the spirit of the asking of God why our earthly relationships deteriorate and crumble. It's in the spirit of the asking of God that reveals our selfish motives. James accuses the audience of this letter, and ultimately you and I, of being adulterers and adulteresses. We are basically cheating on the Lord with the world. Look there in verse 3, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. Then you may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulteresses. Man, what, what emphatic, graphic language that he uses. We know the Bible is adamantly against people who commit adultery. Not, not that God doesn't love them. God loves them, but he wants them to quit it. And he wants them to get away from sin because adultery is sin. And he says, get away from that. James is like, I know. You know what? I had, a, I had a brother. His name was Jesus. And I heard him talk about this a little bit. And adultery was a big deal to him. So he's telling you, adulterers and me, adulterers, adulteresses, stop cheating on God. You're in a relationship with him. It's just like a husband and wife. And, and he's saying, look, it's, it's this relationship. Why are you not getting what you ask? It's because you're a cheater. You're a bunch of cheaters. You're cheating on God. And you think that you're going to come back to him as your, for lack of better terms, your sugar daddy, that you're going to come back to him and he's just going to give you whatever you want? No, that's not who God is. God wants your relationship to be strong and healthy and ongoing. Not this, not this genie in a bottle or like I said a moment ago. God, God doesn't want us to see him in that way. He is, he is who we go to. He is who we are committed to. And James accuses, accuses the, the readers of this letter, and at times it can be accusatory toward us as well. And James emphasizes that the tear in the relationship by his words, when he mentions this at the end of verse 5, he says, The spirit that dwells within us yearns jealously. We are not submitted in this relationship with Christ. We are sliding into the world by not submitting to the word of God. We're sliding into the world because we're not submitting to the word. And that's what happens to many of us. When God gives to us, we should steward our salvation well. We should steward the relationship with God well. And so we submit to God. Therefore, why should we submit? Because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
Therefore, submit to God. As God has given to us and as God is willing to give grace to the humble, submit to Him. Submit to the Lord. We have got to submit to Him. So as we move into this first point, how do we steward our submission? Well, this is the deal. God gives and we resist the devil. God gives and we resist the devil. How do you resist through submission? There in verse 7, it tells us, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So God gives, and we resist the devil. How do you resist through submission? I've said this multiple times in consideration of who or what is stopping us from having a strengthening relationship with the Lord. This is who it is. It's sin, self, and Satan. Sin, self, and Satan. That's what hinders us from strengthening our relationship with the Lord. And we are in a battle of resisting these points, these three points of separation from the Lord. And we must resist these three things as we grow in our faith. James, um, A.T. Robertson wrote in his commentary, he said, James does not stop to argue over the existence of evil. He just says, resist the devil. Just like in the beginning, God created, you know, Moses didn't stop to argue God as the creator. James doesn't stop to argue this, that the devil is the one that's evil. Okay, So James does not stop to argue over the existence of the evil. He assumes the reality of the primary agent of evil, the devil, who is, built on, who is bent on destruction of all that is good in man. The point to see clearly is that there is but one thing to do, and that is to fight the devil. Not with fire, but with the word of God, with the help of the spirit of God. That's how we resist the devil. We resist him with the word. You know, we can think back to Christ when Satan came and tempted him in the desert. How did Jesus confront or battle or resist the devil? He, he quoted scripture to him, didn't he? He quoted scripture. Listen, I have ingrained that into people's minds, into students' minds for years. Our children now are learning Bible verses, the books of the Bible on Wednesday nights. How do you resist the devil? You know the word of God. To stay out of the world, you need to stay in the word. If you want to stay out of the world, stay in the word. And so what you do is you stay in that word and you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You submit to God in this way by resisting the devil. And when, by submitting to Christ on a daily basis, we are strengthening ourselves against the wiles of the devil. We're strengthening ourselves against the wiles of the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read a little bit of that to you. In verses 10 down through verse 11, uh, Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We submit to the Lord in our minds and in our passions. We guard our hearts and minds with the armor of God to resist the wiles of the devil, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 6. And as I quoted, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You cannot be strong in the Lord. You cannot be strong in the power of his might without submitting to him as your Lord. You're going to keep sliding into the world or you need to be uh, submitted unto the word of God. When we steward our submission well, we are strong 
in the Lord. Strong in the power of his might. So too resist the devil. Because the devil is hard to resist without Christ and his spirit, right? He is hard to resist. It's easy to succumb to the wiles of the devil when we're not in the word of God. It's our great barrier against the fiery darts of the evil one. The word of God is. So if we're not in the Word of God and we're letting everything else come into our ears and into our eyes and into our hearts, don't be surprised when Satan's dwelling there too. Because when the Word of God is not your barrier against the the fiery darts, everything gets in there and catches it on fire. We, We need to submit well. And some biblical examples of resisting the devil or sin, self, or Satan and submitting to the Lord. Here are some of the people that submitted to the Lord. We can look at Noah. Noah could not continue life as usual and build an ark at the same time. He couldn't do it. He had to submit to the Lord. Abraham could not stay in Ur of Saran and father a nation in Canaan. He had to submit to the Lord. Moses could not stay on the backside of the desert herding sheep and stand before Pharaoh at the same time. He had to submit to the Lord. David had to leave uh, his sheep to become king. He had to submit to the Lord. Amos had to leave the sycamore trees in order to preach in Israel. He had to submit to the Lord. Jonah had to leave his home and overcome a major prejudice in order to preach in Nineveh. He had to submit to the Lord. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they had to leave their fishing businesses in order to follow Jesus. They had to submit to the Lord. Matthew had to leave his tax collector's booth to follow Jesus. He had to submit to the Lord. And Saul, later Paul, had to completely change direction in his life in order to be used of God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He had to submit to the Lord. He had to steward his salvation. They had to steward their call well. So they had to submit and they had to resist the world. You see, each of these individuals had to resist the flesh and the devil and do what God was leading them to do for his glory. And you and I have to submit to the lordship of Christ and steward our submission for God's glory, our good, and the kingdom's expansion. That's the first way we submit. The first way we submit when God gives is to resist the devil. Resist him. Secondly, God gives, we draw near to God. God gives, we draw near to God. Look there in the next part of that passage of Scripture there in verse 7. Excuse me, in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So in submission, how do we draw near? How do we draw near to God through submission? Well, uh, in, the, in the book, Experiencing God, some of you have went through Experiencing God at some point in time. It's a wonderful study. I would highly recommend, if you don't go through the study, at least read the book. I believe it's by Henry Blackaby and Claude King. In Experiencing God, Blackaby and King wrote of how to adjust our lives through submission to draw near to God. And this is what they wrote. They said, draw near by determining how you will submit in your circumstances. Draw near by determining how you submit your circumstances, like your job, your home, your finances. 
Think about that. Draw near by determining how you submit in your circumstances. Draw near by relating to others in a submissive, Christ-like way. And that's talking about by how you relate to family and friends and co-workers. Draw near by focusing your thoughts through submission of your mind. You know, the Bible tells us to take every thought captive, which is a wise thing to do. Because sometimes our tongues, you know, James talks a lot about the tongue. If you've ever read about that, it says it's set on fire from hell. But our tongues can get us in a lot of trouble. So we need to draw near by focusing our thoughts through submission of our mind, our prejudices, our methods, our potential. We need to draw near by focusing our thoughts through submission of our mind. We need to draw near by laying aside unnecessary things in submission to Christ-like commitments. We need to draw near by laying aside unnecessary things in submission to Christ-like commitments, like those commitments to our family, those commitments to our church, those commitment to your, the commitment to your job or to plans that you have in the future or traditions even. We draw near by choosing actions that glorify God in our submission, like how you pray, how you give, how you serve. We draw near to God by better understanding the Lord and His Word. What does that mean? That means about, you know, better understanding about God, about better understanding about His purposes, His ways, and our relationship to Him. We draw near to God by better understanding the Lord and His Word. You see, Psalm 73, 28 says this, It is good for me to draw near to God. It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. It's good for you and I to draw near to God. We shouldn't resist the Lord. We should resist the devil and draw near to God. The, 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 when James wrote that, it's kind of saying, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. You resist the devil. Don't go toward the devil. Draw near to God. Don't go away from God. Draw near to God. Resist the devil. It was good for the psalmist to draw near to God. It's good for you and I to draw near to God. The second way we submit when God gives is to draw near to him. Thirdly, God gives, we submit by cleansing and purifying our motives. God gives, we submit by cleansing and purifying our motives. Look at the second portion there of verse 8. James writes, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So how do we submit our motives? Motives are hard for people on the outside to see. We know why we do what we do. But a lot of people don't see that. They just see the action, right? James must have known the ceremonial requirements for coming into the temple and for worship when he, he used this language to his audience. He's writing to many people who were Jewish prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So they understood this language of cleansing and purifying. You see, the priests... Uh, wash their hands before they entered the tabernacle of worship. We see that in Exodus 30, uh, 19 through 21, and Leviticus 16, 4. It would have been natural for the language to be applied to moral purity as well. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I'll go about your altar, O Lord. We read that in Psalm 26, 6. You know, Pilate washed his hands of guilt of Jesus' handling by the Pharisees in Matthew 27, 24. Cleansing and purifying, they're, they're similar, but they're, they're slightly different. 
They're slightly different. James uses the word that is associated with a ceremonial cleansing when speaking of purifying, but the language, but the idea is figurative, as in 1 Peter 1.22 and 1 John 3.3. We have looked at the connections as far as so far with in the Old Testament language and New Testament language, but in our time, cleaning up our lives is one of submission to the Lordship of Christ. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. So for us today, the washing of our hands or the cleansing and the purifying of ourselves is more of a, a heart cleansing when we come before God and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins and he will cleanse you. And when your heart is cleansed and when your mind is cleansed, then the works of your hands and the words of your mouth will be cleansed and purified for the glorifying of God, for the furthering of his kingdom, and for the good of you and the good of his local church. James's audience, it's, it's an audience of confessed believers just like me preaching to you today. Many of you have made the profession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Many of you, just about most of you I know of, have done so. And so when he says that, he's, he's, he's uh, speaking to them, and they're desiring to put away the old man and live as the new man or woman in the Spirit. That's how they're, they're living. He's wanting them to live, and he knows that that's their desire, is to live in that way. So Paul, he wrote similarly in his letter to those in Corinth about what God gives. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So he's telling them, look, God has cleansed you. He's given you a new heart. Your motives should be pure and cleansed. But we know we're going to sin again, so we have to confess our sins to the God who is faithful and just to cleanse us and purify us. So in God giving us our new creation, we're able to communicate with and receive the work of the great cleanser, Christ Jesus. So submit yourself to the Lord for his purifying work in our hearts and minds through our desiring his work in our hearts, in our works. The third way we submit when God gives is to cleanse and purify our motives. Fourthly, God gives, we submit our emotions to God. We submit our emotions to God. So how do we submit our emotions to God? Robertson wrote in his commentary, he said, this is an unusual call for the New Testament and from James. The word for repentance does not mean sorrow, but change of mind and life. The need for a change implies sorrow for the sins of one's life, to be sure. But one may have sorrow, but still not change his heart in life. The thing that counts is change, not the degree of sorrow. Change, not the degree of sorrow. James calls for people to change their demeanor, demeanor or better yet, change their emotions. He's saying, look, you know, there's a lot of people who cry. There's a lot of people who are emotional. It don't take long for tears to well up and for them to cry. We got a few in our family. I'm, I'm an emotional person. You know, I, I am. But we got other folks in our family, too, that just cry on a drop of a hat. Like, you're just like, I don't even know why you're crying. You know what I mean? Like, you're crying. You know? Not inside my immediate family. But, but we, I mean, and you're, and you're like, I don't, I don't understand. So I want you to understand this. Crying does not equate to repentance. Okay? 
You know, and many a times, people are more sorry that they got caught in their sin than they are of the sin they committed. So sorrow, tears, you know, a lot of people say, oh, man, there were 100 people crying in the altar. Well, that's great. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that, that's good, I guess. But don't equate tears to salvation. Equate change to salvation. There should be a change of one's heart and one's mind when salvation comes in to an individual. And a lot of times, especially if it's like a big event, that's the reason why I'm sometimes, I mean, I like big events. I like taking students to big events. Sometimes you can have some great speakers. You can have some great worship. You can have some great things occur at a big event. But I want to tell you this too. A lot of times in those things, emotions, emotions lead to people making making statements that, that they really don't mean. You know, this, this change, the change in a person, this is impossible apart from the working of the Holy Spirit within a person's heart. My tear ducts work whether the Holy Spirit's working in my life or not. Emotions in the moment make us do all kind of weird stuff, right? But sorrow for sin, it, it is appropriate. I want you to understand that. Sorrow for sin is appropriate and natural for the sinner who turns away from it. It's natural, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you that tears do not equate sorrow, godly sorrow. But we can't, we can't just say tears equates change. Change reveals change. Jesus experienced emotions for times of anger, sympathy, and loss. Jesus had emotions. There's nothing wrong with being an emotional person, okay? So don't hear, Brother Blake just thinks emotions are of the devil. That's not true. That's not what I'm saying. But they have their place. But we, we've got to, let me, just, let me just stay with my points. If not, I'm going I'm to spend a lot of time in this, okay? Um, we can observe Jesus in the loss of his friend Lazarus where he wept. We can see the anger of Jesus when he saw the temple being abused. And we can see the sympathy of Jesus. Or we can see the sympathy Jesus had in many occasions, such as this, the leper who returned after the healing. The woman caught in adultery and how Jesus showed mercy and grace on her. And the man born blind at the pool of Siloam. We can see the sympathy that Jesus had. But we can also see the anger. And we can also see... Um, the loss through the tears that he showed over Lazarus. Emotions are not an enemy or a detractor from our character, but must be rightly attuned to the heart of God to properly be revealed. Let me say that again, because I think that's important for us to grasp. Emotions are not an enemy or detractor from our character, but must be rightly attuned to the heart of God to properly be revealed. Elijah experienced emotions that he had to give to the Lord. He had fear. Elijah was afraid, 1 Kings 19.3. Elijah ha was in desperation. He said, I have had enough in 19 verse 4. Uh, Elijah said in uh, verse 4 also, I am no better than my ancestors. He had low self-esteem. Elijah, in verse 10 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord. Better said, I've worked hard for nothing. He had anger. He had loneliness. I'm the only one left. 
He had worry and anxiety. They're trying to kill me. And these six emotions are the basic recipe for depression. And in these moments, when, our, when in our flesh, we want emotions to be our Lord, we must submit to Christ our emotions and allow him to be the Lord we professed him to be of our lives. When these emotions want to take over, they, they, we, and we want them. Man, we want, we want to give them lordship of our lives and we want to say what we want to say. We want to say how they make us feel. And we want to respond how they make us feel because in that moment, we're allowing them to take over the heart of our lives. And we must say, no, Christ is the Lord of my life. How can I respond in a Christ-like way? How can I submit my emotions to God? Not submit to my emotions. Because we see this often in our world today. Where people allow their emotions to be their Lord and not Christ be their Lord. In Deuteronomy 4.29, it gives us the first steps in submitting our emotions to Christ. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Finding the Lord also does not equate to finding answers to all of our issues. Okay? Finding the Lord does not equate to finding answers to all our issues, but it does mean having the Lord with us through our struggles, emotions, and issues. And I think that's something that we sometimes overlook and we, and we don't appreciate. Finding the Lord does not equate to finding answers to all of our issues, but it does mean having the Lord with us through our struggles, emotions, and issues. And while he is with us, and he can be with you all the time, submit your emotions to the Lord. Steward that well. Steward your submission well. The fourth way we submit when God gives is to give him our emotions. God gives when we God gives and we submit by humbling ourselves. God gives and we submit by humbling ourselves. In submission, how do we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord? How do we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord? This humility that is mentioned is not a humble yourself only when in worship of the Lord. But humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Psalm 34, 15 states, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. So the eyes of the Lord are ever on his children. He is watching for our protection and provision. And he is also wanting you and I to be his hands and feet. His eyes are on us. So we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. That means we need to be humbling ourselves all the time because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. It's not like God's like, I ain't looking at you now. I don't see you, you know. For those of you that watch wrestling, you know, with John Cena, you don't see me. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's not like that. God sees us all the time. God knows. He knows what we're going through. So, and he knows whether we're being prideful or whether we're living in humility. God sees us. And the Lord desires, 
his people to be doing his work among the world. He wants us to be doing that. And a prideful person will never accomplish in part what a humble person can accomplish in whole. A prideful person will never accomplish in part what a humble person can accomplish in whole. So, so think of these things when considering your place of humility. Humble people lift others up. Humble people lift others up. They are primarily others directed, first upward to God and then outward to others. Humble people lift others up. Humble people want to encourage other people. They enjoy seeing others blossom and bloom. Humble people enjoy seeing other people succeed. They are generous, and generosity is a mark of their greatness. The generos- this generosity tends to make for better mental health in an individual. Humble people enjoy seeing other people succeed. Humble people are able to make peace. Humble people are able to make peace. They are reconciled, reconcilers. And peace may require yielding and compromise. Humble people are able to make peace. Humble people are catalysts toward unity. Humble people are catalysts toward unity. Because pride doesn't hinder them from resolutions and compromise. The humble are leaders in guiding toward unity in their relationships. With all this in mind, it is no small wonder that the Bible says, with the humble is wisdom. With the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 11.2. Humility, humility leads to lifting others up, encouragement, celebrating other success, peace, and unity. And that comes out of the book by T.W. Hunt, The Mind of Christ. Only through submitting to Christ can you and I accomplish the call of James to humble ourselves. We cannot do so in our own strength. It is impossible for us to humble ourselves by our cleverness or ingenuity. We need the power of God himself. We need the power of God himself. So the fifth and final way we submit to God's giving is to humble ourselves in his sight. When God gives, we humble ourselves in his sight. So in conclusion today, submission is the path to God's presence. Submission is the path to God's presence. He will lift you up. Lifting up can mean from the situation, from the depression, or from the pain, but it can also mean directing your focus away from those things to him. In either situation, submission to Christ is the answer to our problems and our needs. So what do we do? In stewardship, when God gives, we submit. We submit and resist the devil. We submit and draw near. We submit and cleanse and purify our ways. We submit and give our emotions to God. We submit and humble ourselves. I encourage you today, submit to Christ as your Lord. He's ready to give. He's ready to give salvation. He's ready to give forgiveness. He's ready to give. 